Welcome back to the latest episode of the Australian Jazz and Group podcast. My name is David Galea, and it's great to have you back with us for episode number seven, which we have labelled the Western Australian edition. And this is because we're featuring some of the great musicians and composers that have come out of Western Australia. Now, to many, Perth may seem disconnected from the majority of Australia geographically, but musically, it's very connected. And to many, this scene is setting the world on fire, with many exceptional jazz musicians and composers hailing from Perth that are now making their mark on the world scene. So we'll be talking to one of these musicians, Perth-based composer and bassist Nick Abbey, about his latest release, Phantoms. Now, you may recall that we played a track from that album in a previous episode on this podcast. Well, today, Nick talks to us about what went into recording and writing this album, who he recorded it with, and then also how the completion of his PhD has helped him refocus his career and his attitude toward being a jazz musician in Australia. Some really interesting insights that it gives us from that. We'll also hear a track from saxophonist Jamie Ollers from a recording of his entitled Smoke and Mirrors, as well as a track from Void, a group that have enjoyed cult following on the Perth scene over the years and also Australia-wide. But to kick us off for today's episode, let's hear from saxophonist Troy Roberts from his recording New Jive. Now, Troy is also a member of the band we just mentioned, that is Void, but we will hear him on his 2011 release entitled New Jive, which features Roberts on saxophone, Eric England on bass, Silvano Monasterios on keys, and Dave Shivington on drums. And this is a track called Chavon.
So that was the title track from Perth-based saxophonist Jamie Ollers, entitled Smoke and Mirrors, which also featured Ari Honeg on drums, Sam Anning on bass, and Tal Cohen on piano. And before that, we heard from Troy Roberts and a track called Sharon from his New Jive release. Well, now it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you our special guest, bassist and composer Nick Abbey from Perth. And to get an idea of what he is all about, let's listen to a track of his latest release called Phantoms and a track entitled One You Thought You Knew.
Well, Nick Abbey, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. Thanks, Dave. Cheers for having me on here. Oh, it's great. And you're in Perth. And I thought, great opportunity to be able to get an insight into your music, your composition, but also what's happening in Perth. Um, so how did you end up in Perth? I know you said you're originally from Melbourne. How did that happen? Yeah, so it's been a long time now. I uh, first moved here in 2006 and um, it was a bit of a whim, I guess, at the time. Well, not a whim, but um, perhaps a little bit unexpected. I sort of was thinking that I'd go to university and do engineering or something at, in Melbourne. But um, there were a couple of kids who were maybe one or two years older than, uh, two years older than me, I think, who had come over to Wapa from my school. And uh, we sort of heard all these really great things. I was playing in the school big band at the time. And so we heard about Whopper and, and all the kind of great things that these two musicians were doing. And I guess through year 12, I just got more and more into what I was doing with music and then auditioned for different um, university spots and got a few different ones. But I, there was something about it. I think I just, there was a bit of romanticism or something about it sounded sunny and yeah good over here so <laughs> decided to come over so that was all the way back in 2006 and i've pretty much been here since then how was that you know growing up in melbourne and then all of a sudden you're on the other side of the country well i think it was the first five minutes was pretty daunting i remember landing here with my dad and back in the mid-2000s perth wasn't as quite as developed as it is now and i think i had some brief second thoughts but as soon as i got uh into this i was you know great um, that I lived in the student village for a while. So I got to meet a lot of people, some other Victorians who had gone over. There was actually a bit of a cohort um, of other musicians who'd moved over at the same time that I had. So got a, a friendship group going and um, lots of great gigs here. Um, you know, you mentioned before we got started, a couple of those great bass players that are around. So I was pretty inspired by seeing people like Dane Alderson doing gigs over here at the time. Um, and it was great. You know, I think it was just an adventure, you know, when you start university and, you're immersed in making music. I just loved every minute of it. And I, I think originally I said that I might only do it for a year, sort of like a like a gap year type thing and then go yeah, back right. to what I was planning to do. But I just loved it. And I started doing gigs during that year and things like that and just kind of got, got underway from there, I think. Yeah, great. So was there a particular teacher or something about the program that at the time was what a lot of people were drawn to? Um, well, the teachers that we have had and still have at WAPA are great bass teachers. Um, I didn't come over specifically for those guys. I remember that when they told me who it was, I didn't really know much about them um, coming from Melbourne other than that they were really great. But um, there was a guy who retired right when I got over called Murray Wilkins. He taught quite a lot of the bass students who went through. But the guys who have been there pretty much for the duration that I've been involved with WAPA are Paul Pooley and Peter Jevons, who are both just fantastic players and really strong educators as well. So there were those guys, but then there were also a bunch of people in the scene who were just great bass players too, like Dane. Um, Linda O was still in Perth at that point in time. Sam Manning was kind of in and out. Um, there was a, another guy called Matt Willis, who was a really great bass player, um, who's not living in Perth anymore. But just, yeah, a bunch of guys who could do it really well and sort of, uh, you know, you'd go out and just see good playing. That was kind of, yeah. At the time, was there, and is there still like quite a few opportunities to be able to play live to an audience? Is that what Perth's got going for it? 
It's funny because I don't, I, I mean, certainly even just comparing it to something like Melbourne, like I don't think it has, it doesn't have as many dedicated jazz venues, that's for sure. It's got a really good jazz club, um, which opened in 2009, I think it was, the Ellington. So that was actually quite a bit after I first moved over. Um, but I guess people are making their own gigs over here. So there's, there's obviously gigs there. We've got the great festival. There's gigs that are put on through the university. Then people have residencies at different places. Like we had one that ran for about 14 years at a, at a, um, at a cafe in Northbridge, which is sort of like just outside of the city. Um, so, and there were other people who had similar residencies in Subiaco. And the, um, again, going back to Dane, like that band had a long running residency uh, at a place called the Llama Bar that went for three or four years, I think. Um, so there are sort of like, it's a bit decentralized, but there are heaps of things going on, if that makes sense. Um, yeah yeah and then there are there are bodies like uh the perth jazz society which put on different gigs they used to have a regular venue but now they sort of put on like little seasons or organized recording projects and things like that and then uh jazz wa as well which hasn't been as active in the last couple of years but they were sort of responsible i think one of the big things that they did was running this recording project called jazz as is which was sort of like a uh, compilation album thing where they would get different bands to come and record like a single and then they also um, ran jazz camp which was like a summer school for high school age students to come and do things at Whopper which was I think that recruited probably quite a lot of Whopper students <laughs> over yeah. the years so yeah that was, um, they did a lot of good things so yeah you know I think it's it's not like there's a huge number of different places or like of specifically jazz clubs but I think that just there's a, a nucleus around the university to some extent, and then people are going and finding all these opportunities to to create and put on music. Yeah, cool. So you, you mentioned someone like Linda O and some of the other musicians. It seems to be like Perth is a bit of a springboard for many to sort of get that confidence to go, as Melbourne is too, to go, you know, let's go over to New York, let's go that. It seems to have been quite successful in that. Is there any... Do you, can you see why that from being there or it just sort of that's how it's happened, do you think? Well, when I first came over, I think the joke that people told me was that there was nothing to do here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so people would just sit around and practice. But I don't think that that's necessarily right. I mean, Perth's a great place. Like it's a city. I mean, it's very much a misconception that it's a quiet town. Yep. You know, it's just a city like any other place. Um, I think... You know, I guess one organisation that I forgot to mention a second ago is WAJO, so the WA Youth Jazz Orchestra, which has been really significant. Like they've had a lot of those people you mentioned have gone through WAJO. I did three years in the WAJO Composers Ensemble as well. Um, and it, that was like a big, almost like an extension course from WAPA or, or, or just as significant in its own right because you were rehearsing every week. It was like really high standard. Um, it would create this culture of people getting together and talking about music and playing music. So um, those kind of things. I think, I mean, what else about WA specifically? I don't know. I guess, yeah, there's just been some good cohorts of people and I think the curiosity of each of them have driven things along. Like you probably know of the band Speedball, like all those guys were sort of a bit ahead of me, like, you know, five to 10 years ahead of me at Whopper, but, you know, they're an example of a cohort who were together and I think developed that understanding as a group. And I think, yeah. you know, you can go through a bunch of different year levels and see that that's what's happened. You know, there's been a few people who have clustered together and kind of advanced as a unit, um, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Is that how you 
with your trio because we're, we're going to talk about Phantoms, which is your release um, that you released in 2019. Often we, I've talked to people and they say it's the vibe that's created you know, in, in places like university. How important has that been for this trio and also do you see it in general in your teaching at Whopper and things like that? Yeah, I think it's hugely important. So in terms of thinking about like what I like as a musician and what I like watching as a musician, I mean, I just love the band vibe really. Like that's, if the band has a cohesive vibe, that's what I prefer more than going to see like a great, you know, quartet, for example, with a horn player out the front of a, or whatever it might be. I don't mean specifically about horn player. Yeah, just, I understand. You know, not not, a, not an individual virtuosity thing. I like the vibe of the group. Um and so, I mean, I guess with my trio, part of that came from studying. So Chris is um, a little bit older than me. He'd gone through Whopper beforehand, but we uh, we met early on and did some gigs, but we actually became friends through doing those other shows and ended up going back to Whopper in 2011 to do honours with uh, another friend of ours, Ben Fall, who's a great drummer over here. And uh, I think, yeah, certainly like that band, we spent a lot of time hanging out and a lot of time playing together and listening to similar music and um, studying, obviously, and going through that whole process and developed kind of a real shared sort of language. Um, And so that, yeah, when was that? 2011. And um, I guess over time, you know, things just changed a little bit with the composition of the band and different things that were happening then. And Ben was overseas for a while and, uh, Dan Sussinger came back from having studied at the University of Miami and I'd done a lot of gigs when I was probably too young to have done them with uh, Dan and a, a great tenor sax player called Troy Roberts. We did this trio residency yeah. for about 18 months and I would shudder to think of what that <laughs> sounded like. <laughs> now. But I knew Dan, you know, from, sort of from having done these gigs with him um, and Troy for over a couple of years. And when he came back, um, yeah, I was like, I guess we were really keen to do some more things. So um, we started sort of working with that trio a little bit more. And um, I mean, that would have been, I mean, it, it sort of still feels like not that long ago that you got back, but we were chatting the other day and it's actually like seven years ago. <laughs> right. So, yeah. You yeah. know, over the years we've done, you know, just countless rehearsals and countless gigs and lots of hanging and different things like that. And, um, you know, Dan's got his own band that I've come in depth in some at different times and, you know, all sorts of other projects, um, some of which I think we'll talk about later on. But, um, yeah, we've just done so much that I think that there's a real rapport there as well. So it feels very natural and I think we have a clear understanding when we play together of what we're trying to achieve and, and what the strengths of the band are and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it's been a very organic and long process, I think. Yeah, and I think it's that length of time and that organic process that shows up in the long run in the music. You know, listening to your album, you can hear that there's, and even watching on your YouTube clip, you could tell everyone's sort of not got their head in the chart. It's like they really, it's like they've sort of owned the music. Someone's not just coming and reading it, they're they're playing this music as a band. I think that's so important. Yeah, that's right. And we spend lots of time like it's funny thinking about the way we rehearse because often we'll be rehearsing a very small bit quite a lot and even quite a simple bit but I think we, we all realize that shape and being very clear about what the direction of the pieces are is really important for that type of music because um, obviously you can play more open-ended music and not having to be so um, 
constrained about some of those things. But when we, like the type of music that I write, and Chris writes similar music as well, um, some of which we've recorded and he was going to do a project this year also. But, um, you know, it's, it's got more of a composed element to it and to be able to make that work in a live setting, you know, we, we do need to really understand each other and how we're going to achieve that. And I think that does carry over when we, when it opens up more as well. Like we know, have a bit more empathy about how things are going to unfold. But, you know, we've spent a lot of time kind of honing that over the years. Yeah, that's, you can tell because listening to your album and not trying to label anything, but it's sort of like a, an ECM vibe on steroids. That's, and I, and I apologize if that's a crude way of looking at it, but, you know, there's the ECM things so beautiful and minimalist, but then to hear this recording, there's so many layers of texture rhythmically, which I read about on your website is what you focus on compositionally, but also melodically. Is that just a natural way that you compose that sort of rhythmic ECM on steroids type thing? Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think that's probably a pretty fair way of writing it and uh, of talking about it. I mean, one of the big influences I have is the bass player Abishai Cohen, um, yep. you may know of. Um, Definitely. And I yeah. probably went through a period that was perhaps a little too long of <laughs> mostly just listening to him. He's amazing. I still, I love it so much, but there was a period where I had like a six CD changer in my car and <laughs> all of the CDs were like the most recent album. <laughs> like it was like his six most recent albums. Right. Yeah. And that went for like three years or something. So uh, when I did honors um, at that time with Chris and Ben, uh, my paper was on Abishai Cohen. So I kind of um, right. investigated yeah aspects of the rhythm in his music and the way that you would use kind of like um, multimeter and um, like different groupings of rhythmic notes and things like that. So that's kind of carried forward. Actually, in this most recent album, I was trying not to overdo that, but I think my version of not overdoing it is still <laughs> kind of overdoing it to some degree because, <laughs> you know, like I um, really just like those sounds. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's a big part of why that sounds like that. And I guess, um, you know, like Chris and I write quite differently and we've just done a gig of his music, which was, um, I loved, I totally loved getting to play. He's written some new compositions and he's very um, lyrical writer and right. interesting in the way that things unfold. Um, so there are some similarities in what we do, I think, aesthetically more than anything. Um, you know, having listened to, yeah, he listened to a lot of Abishai stuff as well, but also things like Brad Meldau or EST or, um, you know, any of those kind of great modern jazz trios. Yep. So the ballpark is similar. And then I guess our interpretation is where it varies a little bit. I love the texture of uh, left hand and bass unison. Um, I love the way that Dan approaches, well, both Dan and Chris are very dynamic players and Chris used the full range of the piano and, Dan, I think for the session, he actually, the setup he used was like three snare drums. He didn't have a floor tom or anything. It was like, I just remember heaps of cymbals and then <laughs> one really deep snare drum that was kind of like a snare floor tom that he was using, experimenting with at the time. And um, yeah, so, you know, being able to capture like a quite a dynamic range from quiet and very open, like on the ballad track to, um, a, you know, more of the heavy drum solo type things and, and being able to do that quite quickly, you know, to make those builds happen quite quickly. Um, yeah, that, re that, all, that all really speaks to me doing things like that, I think.
So with Phantoms, was was it part of your PhD that you did? And could you explain a little bit about what your PhD was? Yep. So I might, I'll start there. So the PhD um, changed enormously over the five years that I was doing it. Um, to begin with, I was actually going to be looking at bass percussion as an extended technique. So, I mean, okay. that was something that I was doing a little bit in my playing, not to a very um, accomplished standard, I wouldn't say, but just something that I used kind of as ornamentations or like a special yeah. effect and that I sort of wanted to get better at doing. But shortly after I started the doctorate, I kind of had like probably something that's relatable to many musicians of a bit of a musical crisis of like, why am I doing this? Yeah. We don't, there's no gigs. I mean, like there are gigs, but you know, it's a bit of a slog and um, I don't know whether this is, I don't know where I'm coming from and why I'm going in this direction. Um, And trying to answer that, those questions uh, actually ended up becoming the core of what the thesis was, um, what what the research was that I did. Um, first, I took five months off, so I just went to Europe with my partner and left the base at home and didn't play and didn't do anything really. Nice. Yeah, uh, yeah just just kind of got out of that. What became quite a negative headspace about jazz specifically. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, when I came back, I was really excited and and wanted to uh, investigate kind of more broadly how to operate as an Australian jazz musician. I mean, not. I know that I would say that it doesn't apply to everyone. You know, some people are pretty content with the way things are going and, and doing really good things. And, and, you know, I felt like I was comparatively successful in what I was doing, but there were just some sort of philosophic or psychological problems with the model of practice that uh, I was using at the time. Um, yeah, so it kind of ended up involving some things like this. I did 10 interviews with other Australian bass players. So, okay. uh, yeah, probably, you know, quite a few of them, like Linda O was one, Sam Anning, Alex Bonham. I'm going to forget someone. I shouldn't have started listing people. But, uh, That's fine. Georgia <laughs> Webber, you probably know from Brisbane. Hi, Georgia, yep. Yeah, great bass yep. player. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a wonderful bass player, great composer as well. And, yeah. Uh, Anna Butters, who's in uh, LA doing fantastic things. and. Uh, a whole bunch of really great musicians. So we, um, I guess, just talk hardly all about what notes to play. In fact, that's kind of what I wasn't interested in, but more just about the philosophy of where they're up to in their careers and, um, you know, why you would play music and how you go about doing it and what your measures of success are and things like that. So that was kind of like the context for my research and I guess one of the main things that I realized through the research was that writing and creating music was really the core of it for me. So it wasn't about being a freelance bass player. It wasn't about, you know, getting awesome at the double bass or, you know, like all those kind of things. It was just fundamentally about, I want to express myself through music. And right. um, okay. the, the album Phantoms, I guess, was written. Um, that was sort of like the practical component of what I was investigating at the time. So uh, I borrowed some writing methods, like indirectly, I guess, borrowed some writing methods from some of those people and uh, sat at the piano for a really long time with my terrible two-finger piano <laughs> technique and wrote all yeah. those tunes. So, yeah, that's kind of what it was about. Yeah, well, so you were really sort of sounds like you were really trying to get into the psychological aspect of being a jazz musician in Australia and being able to use the double bass as just a vehicle to express yourself musically. And that's where I think where composition comes in so heavily when it, as an artist. Is that part of it? 
Kind of, to a certain extent. I mean, when I spoke with Sam, he put it in a really great way, actually. He was talking about Wayne Shorter, and I think it was Wayne Shorter, and talked about the sort of primacy of being the composer, improviser, and performer. And it's like, at that point, it's your music. Like, you define what it sounds like. You define the parameters for success of that. It's, it's, it's a representation of your vision. You know, it's not then kind of beholden to other people or, or anything like that. It's just an expression of what you want to express. Yeah. And I, I really took a lot of, I don't know if solace is the right word, but um, <laughs> like inspiration, I guess, from that, you know, that's, I, I really just wanted to feel, because I guess I've spent a lot of time prior to that wanting to be the dependable side man. And so like I've had a good career doing that, you know, I've sort of spent a lot of time, but I think I reached a point where I was, talking myself in, in circles a little bit about what that really meant. Um, and as yeah. such, I sort of felt like I was very judgmental about where things were at with the playing and was going around in circles a bit in terms of improvement, like kind of just getting bogged down in, in like expectations from all over the place. And I feel like in, especially since fin- actually finishing the PhD <laughs> and having some time to practice again, like just a, a real mental clarity and a real enthusiasm for, and curiosity for practice. Um, And so, you know, just framing it around like the way that I want to make music is it. And I'll just turn up and do that for other people rather than like, I have to do this stuff for other people and I'll get to my thing later on, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because as a bass player, you you can be the side man because that's your job primarily. You're laying it down and you, so that can be a hard space to to get out of you got to learn all these tunes which is fine but you've kind of got to dedicate yourself to that if you're going to do that don't you or you've got to go no i'm going to do this other side exactly and a big part of it was you know you mentioned learning tunes like i think the the trap that i fell into was you know i was doing gigs that were like contemporary gigs and then jazz gigs and then some other gigs as well and so you turn up to the jazz gig and like man i want to sound like christian mcbride today and you turn up to the contemporary gig like man i want to sound like james jameson today and then yeah. Turn up to the other gig and you're like, oh, I want to sound like Kachow or Andy Gonzalez or something and like turn up to all of them and sound like nothing, just kind of like exactly. generic yeah. bass stuff. And yeah. so I guess what I want to do now is I just want to be better at being Nick Abbey and then just turn up to a gig and just do that really well. So, yeah, you know, because yeah. those guys have all dedicated their entire careers to sounding like they sound. Mm. But, you know, the way that we talk, even in the language that we use, like being solid or being dependable and all those kind of things is sort of like that expectation that you kind of nail the spe- the specifics of all these parts totally to the wall and i get that like that's still um what would you say like still an aspiration for me to do you know to get more inside other players but i guess at a certain point just to be happy with like or content enough with who i am as a player and just doing doing that really well you know yeah and i think focusing on my own music was the pathway to that which has made me better in all the other aspects as well.
So with all those bass players that you talked to, was there a common thread that they all sort of had in common that you were able to extract from that? Well, they were fairly wide-ranging discussions, but I guess to maybe the, the most common thread was how, how it wasn't about money at all. You know, right. I guess because yeah. that's the other part of being a dependable sideman. I think the implication is that that's about having a career, you know, getting called by people to do work. And, yeah, that's totally part of it. But I think for me it had become the part of it when it should have been a part of it. And it was, you know, it was clear from these discussions that, um, you know, doing music for its own sake or, or, you know, the artistic outlet of becoming better or playing your own music or playing with a certain person, but, like, that's what you really want to do. You know, that was just so clear from these discussions. The, the kind of, like, for better or worse, the sort of, like, practicality aspect didn't come into it as much. And, and yeah, I okay. honestly think that's, that's better, you know, and you can make all sorts of non-musical compromises to make that work. But it was really inspiring how, for the most part, you know, um, invested in the love of music that all these people were. Or it seemed, you know, there was, there was one that was one longish conversation with each of them, but it was um, really yeah, inspiring for me to, to be privy to that, I think. Yeah, fantastic. So I suppose it's sort of like if nobody was watching, would you still play music? If there was no Facebook, there was no tours, there's no gigs, would I still want to do it? And for me, it's yes. I'm wondering if that's the same with people that have sort of gone to the stratosphere in their genres. Are you doing it for the love of it, you know? Yep, that's exactly right. And, and you know, I guess my answer to the question in 2016 would have been no. So right. I don't yep. want to do it. I don't yep. want to play music anymore because there's not, I'm not doing 10 gigs a week with my trio. I'm not doing, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. making 200 grand a year selling CD. I mean, I know that that's unrealistic, but you know what I'm getting at. Like, exactly. There's, not, yeah. there's yeah. not a financial pathway to monetizing your own acoustic jazz trio music in mm. 2020 as much as there was in 1970 you know it's a different exactly thing. yeah um so i guess now the answer is yes though and and it couldn't have been clearer to me i know we weren't going to talk about covid but um it couldn't no, have been clearer fine. to me the transformation when i was sitting here in this room by myself loving playing the bass when we we're in lockdown you know yep. and it, it kind of led me like i want to do a solo bass project and i and you know i want to learn such and such music and do all these kind of things and I mean, without the experience of having done the doctorate and thought about all these things, it would have been, I think, an exceptionally dark time for me <laughs> yeah. when, when all that stuff had stopped. But, I mean, it was it was tough, obviously, and not as tough as it's been in Victoria. But, you know, when we were locked down, you know, it was there were difficult aspects to it. But having that, that connection and love of music again was, I mean, just so great. It was basically yeah. what made it tolerable or even productive like not that it had to be productive but you know what i mean like no, yeah. just it was good like i enjoyed playing music it was cool and there was no one i hope there was no one else in this room <laughs> while i was here yeah that's all right but um but yeah there was it was just me by myself with the bass so it was great well thanks heaps nick for being on the australian jazz and group podcast it's so generous of you to give us your time and look forward to seeing your next project come about and having a chat then Thanks very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure.
So that was a track called Branching Paths and Broken Things from Nick Abbey's release, Phantoms. And so good to talk to Nick about that recording. Well, we've come to our last track for this episode. And saying that, it's not to say that we've exhausted the Perth music scene by any means in one episode. Far from it. There are so many phenomenal jazz composers and musicians that have come from and are currently living in Perth. Saying that, as a tragic bass disciple, it would be hard to do an episode inspired by the Perth jazz scene without playing a track from Perth-based Void. And if you haven't heard of Void, do yourself a favor and check them out online, check them out on YouTube, buy their album. Amazing group. Now, Void is made up of Troy Roberts. We heard earlier from his album New Jive. He is currently living in the States and performing with artists like Joey DeFrancesco. He's in Jeff Tane Watts' band and so many others. Also featured in Void is drummer Andrew Fizenden, not only a phenomenal jazz musician and fusion drummer, but also the drummer on The Voice and performing, I believe, with artists like Guy Sebastian and many others. Tom O'Halloran on the keys, who is very well known on the Perth jazz scene and my favorite Australian bass player of all time, a big call I know. His name is Dane Alderson, who has also reached superstar status by landing the bass chair in the iconic American jazz fusion group, the Yellow Jackets. So here is a track entitled London from their 2009 self-titled album Void. Enjoy that.
Wow, what a great ending to that episode, episode number seven of the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. That was Void, and you can understand why so many people love this band, just so dynamic. Well, that's the end of our show for today, episode number seven, Western Australian edition, and thank you so much for Nick Abbey stopping by and talking to us about his album Phantoms. Go out and buy that album. Also, please go and buy all the other music that you've heard today. You won't be disappointed by buying and having this music as part of your collection but next episode is episode number eight and it will be our last for 2020 and so check it out we'll be back in 2021 again with another season of the australian jazz and group podcast but be sure to check in in two weeks for episode number eight where we'll take out 2020 with a bang but thank you so much for joining us up until now and until next time it's bye for now Oh, 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 oh,